0: Tandem Nomads, episode 64. I think as a parent, when you notice patterns that just seem a little either unusual or you're getting reports again from school, then... Take note of the unusual nature of them and then look a little bit further into it just to make sure.
1: Welcome to Tandem Nomads, the podcast show for expat partners. Every new episode is launched twice a month on Tuesdays. You will find here great inspiration and tips to build your portable career and thrive with your family in your global nomadic life. Hello, Nomad Nation. This is Emel Teregui. few months ago, in the episode 18 with Rebecca Grabo, we discussed how complicated it can be for parents to provide a stable and sustainable education to their kids while moving from a country to another. Rebecca did a great job presenting some of the available solutions. We also briefly mentioned the case of children with special needs, and I really wanted to get back to you with an episode specifically des- dedicated to these children. So, in fact... A A lot of families with special needs children struggle to provide the constant level of good care and attention because educational and health systems differ from one country to another as well as cultural concepts related to these needs. So to bring you some information and guidance in the matter, I'm very happy to introduce you to an expert, Tracy Ellis. Tracy, are you ready for the ride? I'm ready. Wonderful. Tracy Ellis is the co-founder and CEO of International Diagnostic Solutions, or IDS. She's also an occupational therapist and disability analyst. Tracy has provided evaluation and treatment to children for over 20 years and serves in several boards, such as the Washington, D.C. Health Professional Licensing Board. Her company, International Diagnostic Solutions... Uh, provides to global families educational and therapeutical solutions worldwide through online consultation, service, and program development. So, Tracy, I just summarized briefly what you do. Is there anything I missed?
0: No, and it was a mouthful. <laughs> I understand it was a mouthful, and there is a lot that we do at IDS. Um, but I think you did a great job.
1: Wonderful. So let's just kick in with the topic right now. And is there any way, before we go deeper in the topic... To summarize, um, what does it really mean, children with special needs?
0: You know, I love the fact that you're asking that question because it means so many different things to so many different people. And I think um, a lot of that has to do with not only public perception, but cultural perceptions as well. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, if you have someone who, for example, is diabetic and has to have a low sugar diet, Technically, that's a special need. Um, when a child has problems paying attention and perhaps they need to sit at the front of the classroom so that they can better focus, that's a special need. I think historically, people have applied this 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 concept, special needs, to maybe children and adults who have extreme um, challenges and maybe they require a wheelchair for mobility or perhaps they have... Um, um, more significant needs for in support to in order to be independent. But we, how we look at it and the way we really see special needs is that it's anyone who needs any kind of adjustment or accommodation just to be able to be successful, whether it's in the classroom or in their community. I think the other piece about that is depending on where you are and depending on, um, on the Uh, the cultural and education system. We know that um, disability rights worldwide is a huge um, area of focus right now. And so we're seeing a lot more countries be a lot more inclusive minded, which means they don't take people who have special needs and who learn differently and, and have them learning in a different place and not including them in, for example, the workforce, but they're focusing on ways to become more inclusive. And that's what we look for when we're talking about schools, whether they're um, in someone's home location or they're through the international schools or in, and they're living in different locations. The word we like to look at is inclusion and to make sure society is being inclusive.
1: That's a very good point. And is there any way you can maybe tell us what are the, from your experience working with families abroad, What are the challenges that these families with special needs children have to face with because of their global lifestyle?
0: Well, there's there's a number of issues that you have to look at. First of all, um it looks you have to look at is this a new situation that's just being coming out as you're going as you're moving around? So for example, if it's a child in kindergarten, is this the first time an issue is showing up? Um or is this a situation where you have a known issue, whether it's an emotional or behavioral issue or perhaps it's a problem um with speech and language that you are aware of? So as people prepare to um, – some of the challenges that families are, are rec- recognizing as they move is that, number one, they may not have the resources in schools available at their next location that they might be used to at home or in their current location. Mm-hmm. So what one of the pieces is – are you going to have the the resources that you need? And that might mean, are there going to be therapists locally? Is there going to be a pediatrician who understands um, some of the developmental or learning challenges that they're dealing with? And is the school going to be open-minded to supporting their child differently? Um, The second piece we look at is, uh, the, the challenge of communication if you 're moving to a location where um, inclusion is not typical and perhaps they they really try and there are some locations where a child with ADhd is is kind of pushed into a special environment versus it being in the regular classroom um, we We find that a lot of parents have a hard time communicating with the school in a way that gets them what they need mm-hmm. ultimately what what 's really important is to find a way to talk to someone in order to get what you need. Um, and so sometimes it's about communication, and then sometimes it is dealing with these perceptions when you go to a location and your child maybe previously had been fully included in the classroom and the teachers um, tailored their educational plan to the child and you move to another location and they don't think it's part of their job to have to make all of these exceptions. Mm-hmm. There's a whole lot of challenges mm-hmm. um, and so transition can be very difficult. Yeah,
1: you 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 did point out some very good points, including the one of the continuity, you know, of care, because that's very important when we have a, be it a mental or physical, you know, um, a need, uh, or 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 how to say difficulties. Um, the most important thing is also to be able to continuously provide that care that the child needs, and and I guess. This is one of the main issues of a global nomadic lifestyle um, mm. and that's great we're going to talk about it later, but it's great to have you know online solutions to provide that you know that continuity but before we go deeper in the topics and in the challenges, I would like to f- help the parents who are not yet in that situation where they already know what's happening. What about if we don't know and we suspect that maybe the children, ha- the child has a special need. So, is there any signals that could help parents and and to detect early enough that their children have special needs? And is there any examples you can give us?
0: Absolutely. Um, well. First of all, as humans we 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 all fall on a continuum of development. So there's the motor development, the social emotional development, cognition, how our brain works, and our communication development. And so from birth till about 5, we look for everyone to be following a certain there's a guideline, there're developmental milestones. So for parents with children 5 and under, um, you can go online and and print out what those developmental milestones are just to make sure that, okay, what should my child be doing between two and four months of age? Uh, at what time should they be sitting? When should they be standing? How, what age should they be when they are stringing two and three words together? So there are so many resources for parents to make sure, almost like a checklist, is my child meeting their developmental milestones? Mm. And again, it really doesn't matter where where in the world you are; those developmental milestones are pretty much the same. Now, the the difference really comes in after that five year old age range. For the in, in terms of a resource for parents, there are plenty online, but CDC.gov, for example, the um, Center for Disease Control. They have a, a listing of, ch- um, of developmental milestones. Mm-hmm. Pathways.org is another one, and childmind.org. Those are just some examples where you can easily hop on and look at for each age range what your child should be doing, and then when to what are things that are flags for each of those different age ranges. Once you get to the five year old and up range, then you really should be um relying heavily on the educational system what we look at is um and one of the actually one of the pitfalls we see with kids in this age range is sometimes a teacher might communicate with the parents that you know we're noticing that Bobby is really struggling um with comprehension and i think our our first instinct as as parents is to just jump in and be a little bit defensive mm. when in actuality Teachers are experts. So if it's a kindergarten or a first grade teacher, they are experts on what children should be doing at that age. So in essence, they're a continuation of those developmental milestone guidelines, right? Mm -hmm. So when they're sharing with you that there might be cause for concern, I think it's really helpful if parents look at them as, okay, this is just like my doctor saying, we notice a problem. And let's look into it further because what we know is that early intervention is the the most important um, aspect of of working on any kind of developmental delays or learning challenges. So um, I think it's really important to listen to what teachers have to say and be open-minded. And so the the other piece is, at that age, kids are often playing with peers. Um, So whether it's cousins, sisters, brothers, I think parents, if they do have other children, it is helpful to look at um, what one child did at a certain age when compared to another. Now, everyone does grow and develop differently. However, if there is a significant difference between what uh, you know what your first your child who is six did when compared to the current six year old, you want to you know that's a, that's a red flag. If you notice that there are either not getting along with peers or having problems making friends um, or really frustrated with school in those early early stages, well, then those are red red flags, too, and you want to look at some of those things as signals. But try, um, I can't impress enough, try to not go into that defensive mode. But if people share concerns or share thoughts about how your child is doing, at least have an open mind enough to dig into it a little bit deeper. Um, because putting things off, you know, so often we see families who just wanted to keep waiting it out. Well, let's just see, let's just see, and you wait two more years. But in that two years, the child is not developing at the same rate as their peers. So what might have started off as a six month or one year delay is now a
1: three year delay. Mm, very good point. So you suggest that it's very important to ahead of time, even if there's a slight. Very small chance that this must be a situation of a children of a chil- child with a special need to just check it up before even not getting worried, but just checking it.
0: Absolutely. And, you know, uh, people usually say, well, who do I go to and, and what should I do? What kind of person should I go to? And, you know, first of all, if it's, a, if it's an infant and going through those early years, first go to your pediatrician. The, the one downside of that is um, pediatricians, I know in the U.S. these days are very busy and an, an appointment can last all of five minutes. And it's difficult for them to see any real, um, unless they're incredibly obvious signs, it's difficult for them to see kind of developmental or learning problems or behavioral problems. And outside of the U.S., While sometimes they may have more time, maybe they don't, they don't always focus on development. That also is, here in the U.S., it's part of the standards for pediatricians. That's an expectation. But in other locations, pediatricians are primarily focused on, you know, colds, flus, broken bones, that kind of thing. And so um, they, uh, depending on the system in that country, the schools are the ones that are supposed to uh, acknowledge those kinds of delays at which point you're probably at five or six years old, so you're really behind in, in getting some kind of diagnosis. So first stop would be the pediatrician and asking them. The second stop is you think about, okay, well, what is the problem that we're having? So if you notice that your child is having problems with communication or social skills, for example, then you should be thinking, who handles that? And that's a speech language pathologist. And so you want to try to find someone who is a speech language speech language pathologist to help. Mm-hmm. If it's a motor issue and you notice they're not sitting or standing when they should, or they're they really have difficulty with handwriting and, and holding the pencil, then you want to look at an occupational therapist or perhaps a physical therapist, but somebody who is skilled in knowing what those motor pieces are. Mm-hmm. Um, behaviorally, you look at a, a behavior analyst or a psychologist. Now, I think what people are probably sitting there thinking is <laughs> these people aren't available everywhere. Mm. Um, but so you want to go through the this, this stages of, okay, pediatrician first, then who can I go to? And if you can't find them locally, that's when you go online. Um, and, you know, I think one of the, the things that we see parents do, which can be very dangerous, is they go online and they look up what's going on. And as we know, I mean, you could have a a bruise and and in your head you think it might be cancer. There's so many things online that lead people down a road that's really not good. And it's really just best to get the expert opinion on what's going on.
1: Um, So you do not recommend to find information online?
0: Well, finding information to find resources, yes, meaning people that you can talk with and who can help you through it, experts. You want to speak with an expert. Unfortunately... Um, Sometimes we hear about parents who, for example, their child might have been having behavioral problems or have been really delayed. They have sensory issues. And it might be that someone online says that this is all diet related and this is the diet you need to eat so your child needs to eat so that all of these problems will go away. And you can lose valuable time Mm -hmm. in going through some of these routes that just really aren't on target. It's what you suspect um, I use an example a lot where, you know, for a teenager, adolescent or teenager, um, sometimes they might appear to have ADHD and we'll hear from the school or from the parents, you know, I know my child has ADHD, when in actuality for that age group, it could be depression, but depression can manifest itself as seeming um, to have an inability to focus and and kind of in and out of their seat. So people mistake it. And if all of a sudden you start treating for ADHD, when in fact you have an issue with depression, you're not going to have any progress. So it's really important to not Um, assume that you know what the issue is, but perhaps go to the specialist the expert who can help.
1: That's a very, very important advice. And actually, you've been saying so many things right now that are very important to know, and I'd like to summarize them because I think this is the start where we start handling the issue in a good way. First is... How to diagnose? And you said something very interesting that basically from zero to five years old, it's pretty standard around the world. Where are the milestones of a child development? Is is it correct?
0: Yes, and those are the developmental milestones.
1: very good. And so you shared some um, some resources where we can find where what are those milestones? So Nomad Nation, I'll put them on the uh, show notes page of this episode. I think you mentioned CDC.gov, mm-hmm. Pathway, and Child Mind. Pathways.org and ChildMind.org. Very good. So I'm going to put those in the show notes page because I think it can be very helpful to know what are those milestones. And from five, could you give an example actually before we an example of a milestone? Oh, sure. So, um,
0: for example, um, when you want to make sure that a child is is walking, for example, or if you for So milestones at one year, you want to get from sitting, uh, get to a sitting position without assistance. They're crawling forward on their belly by pulling with their arms and pushing with their legs. They're able to get up on their hand in a hands and knees position. If it were finger skills, you want to make sure that they can use their thumb and their index finger together in what's called a pincer grasp or they bang two cubes together together. Um, they can say mama and dada. Um, they're able to, if you hide something, they can find hidden objects easily. Um, and with social and emotional milestones, um, you might see them cry when the mother or father leaves. That would be appropriate. They enjoy imitating people, um, imitating people in play. So you can go through all of these pieces, um, each of the different areas for each age group, and then they call it, for one, they call it a developmental health watch. So at one year, they'll say, if your child does not crawl, this would be a red flag. Uh, if they drag one side of their body while crawling for over a month, that would be a red flag. Mm-hmm. If they don't point to objects or pictures that or use gestures um, such as waving or shaking their head, those would be, um, those would be times to say, hmm, Maybe I should get this checked out.
1: Like I said, I will put these information on the show notes page. And then you said after five years, uh, then it becomes a bit more complicated from from a country to another and from a system to another. But basically what you said is that um, we have to pay attention to what, the educational system, and teachers are communicating with parents and not necessarily get, you know, uh, defensive if a teacher comes up with an issue and really consider it, is it serious or not at that point. Exactly. And and the second tip you gave was also, you know, watch how our children are behaving with other children and other people. That if they have friends and if they're communicating with other people, uh, are they having, you know... Uh, some kind of social life as a children, right? Sure. And, but also, you know, if you have, if your child is,
0: is seven and you see them out um, in some of their motor skills, for example, on the playground, and they have a seven-year-old friend, and the seven-year-old friend seems to be very, very much more advanced, um, you know, and perhaps there's a five-year-old on the playground and you see that your seven-year-old is maybe more like the five-year-old. Those might be times that you say, hmm, maybe something is going on. You also can look at the school age level, also with some of the motor issues. We look at things like maybe they're clumsy. Are they always bumping into things? Are they dropping things?
1: Oh, those are good tips. I think it already gives a good indication of what to look at when we want to consider and see if there is any slight chance that the child might be, might have some special needs. And it's not so much to be negative, but just, you know, Take the issues early enough if they're there,
0: right? And I think it's really critical to con- to to keep in mind also that we have these areas of development that I talked about. But once you hit that school age level, it's not as much about the development, but there's an adaptation component. And what that means is, so a, a child can get into the school age, and then they just um, they maybe they tantrum more, or they they have outbursts, or transition between classes seems to set them off. So you notice some behavioral issues. Um, They just don't tolerate changes well. And maybe you notice sensory problems, whether it's they don't like loud sounds or um, they're always kind of, they don't like being uh, the tags in their shirts. There's a lot of different types of, as you get into school age, different types of issues. But I think as a parent, when you notice patterns that just seem a little Either unusual, or you're getting reports again from school. Then take note of the unusual nature of them, and then look a little bit further into it, just to make sure. You're just sometimes it's just a, a fluke, and you're just checking. But it's better to check and be safe than to c- keep considering. Well, I thought it would pass. I thought it would pass.
1: Okay, very important message that you're sharing with us here. And and once we do have a doubt, then there is three tips that you did share. On how what to do next, you said the first thing to do usually is to go see a pediat, a, a pediatrician. Sorry, I can't pronounce <laughs> pa- pediatrician. Pa- pediatrician, thank <laughs> you. <laughs> so uh, to go to see a pediatrician, and in certain countries they're not in charge of of development of the child, so sometimes it's the school. So if if basically. The first step is the doctor. And then maybe if we know exactly what kind of, you know, disability it might be, then go directly to the specialist of that field who might also give us more indications of where to go. Exactly. And and the third thing that you said is also very important to not try to find the solution online, maybe find the resource of who can tell us what is the issue and how to fix it, but not necessary to diagnose ourselves the issue online.
0: Exactly, and that piece really is critical.
1: Yeah, very important. Well, thank you for that. I think we set the basics here of special needs. So now let's try to, deep, uh, to dive more into the challenges of the parents who travel the world and have to take care of their special needs children and make sure that they are provided the, what they need along the way. Uh, so how would you recommend the parents to prepare that move once they know what their children uh, what kind of issue that children have?
0: Well, you know, this—it's funny because we've we've seen the gamut of of different approaches that parents take, and the one that we've seen a lot, particularly early on, was that parents uh, often need to take a particular post in order for their career to keep moving forward. So sometimes they have to make that difficult decision of. Should we go to that remote location, even though we know our child has issues, maybe they already have an education plan, and they think, well, if they know we have an education plan, they may not let us go. And if we don't go, the career doesn't move. So sometimes parents think the best thing to do is keep quiet about the issues, the educational or therapeutic needs. And what I would tell you is that doesn't usually work. Mm -hmm. Um, we found that for parents to be honest and open and communicate um, about the issues that their child is having, they they have typically have a better placement um, and a better move. Uh, and what so what does that really mean? First of all, we know that a lot gets lost in translation, and I just mean even from a, sometimes a parent saying what their child needs versus somebody being able to read a plan. Um, and so we always tell families. Keep the documents together. Keep them together and have them ready to show a school. I actually recommend if families, I don't, we use, um, sometimes families will use Dropbox or whatever they have so that they can keep their important documents online so that if in the process of moving, a box doesn't show up, they're not without their records. And so keeping those records online where they can access them immediately and share them with the people that's necessary is a really great idea. You want to prep. You want to put the pertinent information together, because oftentimes if you're going to a school and you're looking for admission, they want to see everything that they need to know in order to determine if they can enroll your child or not. This is where a lot of parents get scared, though, because they're worried that a school will say no. What we've found is that when families, first of all, you do need to do some vetting. Um, what There's a huge movement in the international schools now to become more inclusive, And what that means is that they want to make sure that all all students, no matter what their learning challenges might be, can attend the school and be supported. And so in that vein, it's nice to know that a parent can now talk to a school about their inclusion program. Do they have people who um, are educational specialists or special educational needs focused in these schools? And, you know, we talked earlier about what does it mean for special needs there's a the language that's used in the international schools for just this issue is they say special educational needs, so S E N, which is different from, for example, here in the U.S. where we might say special ed or sped. So just to keep in mind, it's about special educational needs, and sometimes schools do get a little bit nervous about it. But if a, if you find a way that you can communicate what a child's needs are clearly um, Sometimes the school is like, oh, you know what? That doesn't sound so difficult. Yes, we can enroll your child. So it's about putting together a plan, finding the right language to use, and communicating your needs. So, for example, if a child, uh, if a school knows that a child has an education plan and they have um, maybe some speech problems and some ADHD, they might say, you know what? We really can't do that. But if the parent tells them that they're getting speech therapy, support online and that they need to be at the front of the class and they have a sensory diet that they're using in the classroom. So it's actually quite easy to support them. The school changes their mind. Mm. Sometimes you just need to explain what it is that you need and it doesn't seem like such a big, um, a big ask.
1: Interesting.
0: And then the other thing is, um, just making sure that you don't hide and you don't take your Perceptions of a school, for example, if a school isn't as open minded, um, you know, we you get we say you get more bees with honey. And so I think that if you go in requesting and offering to maybe expand their knowledge of what's going on with your child or learning challenges versus going in and demanding that they help your child. Um, I think that you'll get a lot more support. And what we've found is when our fa- when there are schools that our families go to that are not providing support or haven't traditionally, and the family says, yes, but we actually have people who can train your teachers to support my child, the schools are open-minded to it, and they actually they let us in. And then we we have this great working relationship of supporting the, the kids in the school, and they're getting support at home. Um, and then the, the other piece that I would say here is that for some families, they think they have to do it all on their own. But depending on who what who the employer is, you can get some additional support, um, you know, for some of the different government. Um, if, you're, if your family is traveling, working with the government, whatever the government might, might be, um, someone at the embassy might be able to, to um, put a little pressure on the school to, to see if they can help. You know, those schools are largely in place to support a lot of the um, the embassy families and so that's one way that you can do it and sometimes they do get a lot of funding from large corporations so in that in that respect they they have a little bit of an obligation also to help families and so do try to reach out to your employers too to see if you can't get a little extra support
1: very good point thank you so much tracy you've been saying very very um Like helpful advice here to take care of our children who have special needs and move abroad. So I'm going to just summarize. I've I've noticed five major points here. The first one, very important one, when you said, don't ignore the issue. Don't underestimate it. Just take care of it. Don't move abroad saying, well, let's see what will happen. Because that's kind of dangerous. If there's really an issue, we're just postponing the issue that might get bigger. And the second point you said is keep the records. And you mentioned Dropbox, for example. It's a great tool that I use a lot to just keep our documents available at any time, anywhere. And I really recommend it too. Uh, The third point you said is know how to communicate our needs, but, for example, with the schools, to be specific and not ask them, okay, are you t- do you have special programs for kids with special needs, but more tel- telling them exactly what we need. For example, it's better if my child is in the front of the mm-hmm. class. That was a very good example that you gave and how to make it sound easy for the school to care of it if they're not used to kids in this situation. Um, the fourth point that you said was that Partnership, if I can summarize it this way, Tracy, uh, when you said that it's important to not just burst in and demand for those services from a school, for example, but just work with the school, right? hmm Yeah, absolutely. And and the five point was very interesting and very important is to not be afraid to look and ask for additional support from the employers, for example, of the partner who sent abroad. Absolutely. Thank you very much for those five points. They're very helpful. And how do you, how do you, how to say, how do you help the parents in this case?
0: Where do you come in, actually? So we come in at depending on when the parents come to us. We come in at different levels. Um, if it's before a family is moving abroad, for example, and they say, okay. Okay, Tracy, th- these are the issues that we're dealing with and we're moving to X location and we need to know if the school can help us. So first of all, if you have the opportunity, let somebody else do the talking for you. Let somebody else reach in. Um, sometimes that helps. It's it's almost as instead of you trying to get a hold of a doctor and explain what's going on, it's sometimes if your doctor contacts the other doctor to let them know what's going on. It's that same mindset. So if they know that people in the field of education and therapeutic support are contacting them, they might say, hmm, okay, let's have a conversation about this. So sometimes we do this work of vetting of schools. So if a family is looking at three or four schools, they can ask us to to look at which ones might be the most inclusive and able to help. Um, when it, when it comes, you know, you mentioned this whole uh, going from place to place earlier and as our families are going along and it, how difficult it can be. And one of the things that we find is having consistency is really key. So when we step in, um, it might be that we were working with a, a child in uh, Zambia and now they're moving to Switzerland and so they get to keep their same speech therapist. And there is an educational specialist who's actually tracking their progress just like they would if they had a full special education team. So um, with kids like this, in this the situation we just used, we would be reaching out to the school to explain how it would be very easy for them to support this child. But if they still felt a little bit nervous, let us provide a little bit of extra training. So we talked about this child having a sensory diet. My occupational therapist who's um, certified in sensory integration, would be able to share what what is a sensory diet and how does it help. And sometimes when you just give someone a little extra knowledge, if they know why they're doing something, they don't have any problem doing it. If you just give them a whole bunch of chores and they don't understand what it's all working towards, then they say, you know what, this is too much. So we do some training. We might be doing the direct therapy. We might be talking with the school. A lot of times when parents are getting ready to go, if they don't have an education plan with specific goals, we develop that for them as well. And I think that's key because different. as you move around the world, uh, for families who've had multiple moves, they've probably recognized that not all schools are the same. Mm-hmm. Some have a more rigorous academic program. Others probably didn't make the progress they should have in a year. Um, even though they just a- attended a year of school. So what we like to do is make sure that families know that somebody is overseeing that their child is making the actual progress that they should make in a year. And when you have an education plan, you get annual goals. And And if the child's not meeting those annual goals, well, why not? Do they need more support? Do, is there a need for more training? Or are they not getting what they need in the classroom? And how do we adjust? Mm-hmm. So. And I think one of the keys is that, you know, the parent is a parent. They're not an education specialist. They're not a speech therapist. They're not an occupational therapist. And they're not a behavior analyst. Mm -hmm. So it's not always fair to expect that they're going to know how to project the goals and what their child needs. And it's like I said earlier, going to the expert. And so what we do is we provide the team of experts so that they can come to us for help. And know that whatever level of input they need, whether it's for us to have one conversation with the school or if they want us there for ongoing support, there are resources available.
1: Mm, Very good point. So basically what you're doing is, I guess the important thing that we've discussed since the beginning is the assessment. And I guess you can come in to help assess the situation and then build a plan, like you mentioned previously, to go know, live abroad from country to another, but still provide that sustainability in the education and the development of the child.
0: Exactly, and actually, one of the one of the pieces that we hear about often is somebody might be in a location where there is no one locally to provide um, uh, assessment in their language. So, whether it's um, a Korean family living in Russia or a um, an English speaking family living in France. If you can't find someone to assess your child, sometimes parents go into panic. What are they going to do? And now they're going to have to go back home. They're going to have to move. What's going to happen? Um, and so what, what we like to let people know is it doesn't have to be an emergency. Now, for certain aspects of um, of learning needs and diff- certain things require a diagnosis, especially to get the right kind of support. But some things don't. And what typically happens in a school, if you notice a child that's having difficulty, then you bring in people who know the right questions to ask. You bring in the experts to talk to each other, talk to the parents, talk to the school, and really study what's going on. And then to give immediate resources to the school, to the teachers, things to do at home, things to do in the classroom. And this a lot of times just helps for us to um, further define, okay, we know these were the the issues that were brought to us, but we think it's X, Y, and Z. Let's try these uh, solutions. And if they don't work, let's try another set of solutions. But what we do is we get it, we fine tune and figure out what the primary issues are and set a plan in place to support those issues. So even without a diagnosis per se, um, you know, for example, there may not be a diagnosis, but we n- might know that a child has um, fine motor delays and visual motor problems. Mm-hmm. There are plenty of things that the family and the teacher can work on with that child to help improve fine motor skills and visual motor skills. And that can wait until then diagnosis happens later. So there are ways to step in and get immediate support. And I think that's what's important for parents to know. You don't have to panic. You don't have to run home. Again, sometimes it's about reaching out to the experts, let them put you at ease a little bit, and let us ask some questions to figure out what's going on and get everyone on the right path.
1: Yeah, that's a very good point. Actually, I would like to insist a bit on the, the, the you know, we've been talking a lot about the schools here. And um, we haven't talked too much about, you know, medical care, etc. I think that could be a whole new episode. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, is there any, you know, at some point, if the schools cannot provide the support that the kid needs abroad, would you, have you ever had a case where you considered that it was time to back go back home, for instance? Well, you know, I
0: think there's a couple of factors that are in mind here, and yes, there are times when it really the best the best choice is to go home. But everyone is different. For example, we've had families where there's four children, three are in the the, the international school, and one is not allowed. And all of a sudden, um, the mom who has been an accountant her entire life, let's say, is is in a position to have to homeschool. And she has no education experience or anything. It, is she willing to do the homeschooling or not? If she's not, then there's no school placement. Then it's time to go home. Mm-hmm. But we see some parents who say, "You know what? This is just what we have to do." And they dig in and they just make it work. For some families, they really embrace that. Okay, we're gonna we're gonna put together these home programs. We're gonna do everything we need to to see if we can stay. But then for some families, it's, you know, everyone's family situation is different. And it also depends on how much that situation is impacting on the kind of emotional health of the rest of the family. If, if every day and every week is wrought with stress and with anxiety because the behaviors of an eight-year-old are, bege- are becoming worse and it's affecting the siblings and it's affecting the, the parental relationship – I think then to look at where can they get the most support is you know, and then they have to they have to look at it that way. They could be in certain locations where there's tons of support, and they they have extreme needs, but there's support there, and they don't need to go home.
1: And sometimes so, it's better than home. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely.
0: Actually, I've worked with a lot of families in the D.C. area who stay in in D.C. Um, because of the fact that back in their country their child would be put in more of an institutionalized school, which isn't what they want. Mm -hmm. And so, again, you go where there's inclusion. But sometimes, um, and it's not necessarily the fault of the school, because sometimes they're just trying to make sure that before they have your child in, that they're not saying that they can support them when they really know they can't. Um, That Ethically, that wouldn't be proper for them either. So it really depends on um, issues around the family's kind of uh, that, uh, I don't know, uh, the their courage and, and ability to, yeah. to really push through it's and try. It's a personal
1: decision at the end of the day. How much can we put into it? Uh, because it's not only about resources, it's also about energy and also uh, knowledge. How much can we invest in it? And how much can we handle it ourselves? And I think it's, it is, in a way, a very personal decision.
0: It is. And, you know, there are a couple of other pieces to take into consideration um, you know a lot of times we call, talk about developmental delays, but if, for example a, an issue has to do with something that's more degenerative in nature, mm-hmm. maybe it's a syndrome that the um, the prognosis isn't one of continual improvement, but that there might be ongoing medical aspects, then you might want to consider being in a location where you have access to the right kind of medical specialist of absolutely, and mm-hmm. at times when the, any of the issues, whether they're behavioral or mental health impact on the safety of the child or even other people. I think families really have to consider, um, to consider not only the safety again of the child and the family. Um, but what, what does staying further exacerbate that?
1: Oh, good point. Does it help or does it make it worse? (laughs)
0: Right. I mean, for some kids, they don't want it. They don't really as as we've talked about in the expat community, what is home? So to say to a child who's never lived in their passport um, country mm-hmm. that they're going home—that might be more stressful than staying where they've been living for the past five years. So again, it's you have to consider um, where the resources are and where what is the level of safety, what is the level of medical need, um, and really where is your child going to get? Have access to the most success or ability for success.
1: Yeah, very good point. It's a good way to finish this episode, actually. To, mm-hmm. At the end of the day, it's all about the child and what is the best for the child and what works for him best. And sometimes, actually, moving from a country to another is too stressful. So either we manage to get the right professional to help with that stress level, or we make the decision to go back to where the child feels good.
0: Yeah, and and. Again, these are the, while these decisions are hard, I think sometimes when, when families are used to moving and having to do everything themselves and learn a new system every single time, one of the things that we feel really good about providing to our families is that continuity from place to place. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, if you have a teenage girl who really is struggling with anxiety and some emotional issues, and she just can't stand moving because every time she moves, She has to find a new therapist. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, in our situations when our kids have moved from location to location and they keep their counselor, how nice Mm -hmm. is that? Because they're working on, they can work on it in advance. So prepping to move and then they can be there with a familiar person during the transition and then afterwards. And I think it's really, really important that families realize they don't have to do it all on their own. Mm -hmm. They can ask for help whether it's from their employer or it's going to resources like ours, but just realizing that it, they don't have to be under that, that bundle of stress of how do I, because what they're doing is how do I figure out how to be an educator and how do I be a therapist and how do I do all of these things on top of being a parent and that the hardest part is being a parent.
1: Definitely. <laughs> Definitely. So on these good words, is there anything you would like to add before we say goodbye? I think that's it you know we're um, we
0: have such a great team and a a really diverse group of people working with us and so we always welcome questions we we love we also love to hear what families are are dealing with so we always welcome emails just sharing sharing experiences because what that helps us to do is make sure that we have the right people um, prepared and ready for for when the the request for help comes
1: so what is the best way to
0: find you So, certainly, um, they can go to our website, which is www.idsalliance.com, and um, there's a a place where they can go in and share um, their their email and their situation so that we can get back to them right away. And even if they just want to have a quick chat with us, a quick Skype, just to say, hey, do you think this is an issue or not? We're, that's what we're here for
1: fantastic tracy this was really full of great advice thank you so much for taking the time for sharing all your knowledge here thank you nomad nation i hope that you enjoyed the great insights of our guests today if you did please make sure to share it with your friends see you at the next episode and stay tuned to turn your challenges into great opportunities